Good morning. So good to be with you today. Uh, we're starting a new series today called Go Tell It. And this is a Christmas series, and this is about evangelism, pointing other people towards Jesus. And I can just hear some of you thinking right now, Christmas series on evangelism? What's evangelism got to do with Christmas? We're supposed to talk about the angels and, you know, the baby and the... Okay, so let's, let's, we could talk about that. You see, the, we can see from the Christmas story that evangelism is a natural next step to actually meeting Jesus. It's a very natural next step. Not a forced next step. It's a very natural next step. My goal today in this message uh, is, is to, to help you get unfreakified about evangelism. It's a very natural next step. We can see the Christmas story in Luke chapter 2. So uh, the baby Jesus was born, and then uh, like these angels showed up, a whole host of angels showed up in, in front of the shepherds, and according to the King James, they were sore afraid, which means they were scared big time. Come on, that was funny. Thank you. There you go. Ha, 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 ha. All right, so, so they were just blown away when the angels said that, you know, the Messiah has been born. They were blown away, and we could pick it up in verse 16. They hurried off, and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they, everybody say it together, spread the word. That's what they did. They spread the word concerning what had been told them, told them about this child. And all who, truly, all who heard it were truly amazed at what the shepherds said to them. Big idea for today is this. When you truly meet Jesus, you can't help but tell it. Right. It's a very natural next step to truly meeting Jesus. It just, it's just going to happen. It's just kind of the fruit of meeting Jesus is telling somebody about it. Spreading the word about what has happened is a very important piece of the Christmas story. And today... Like today, the shepherds did it, and all they saw was the baby. But we know what that baby did. That baby died on a cross. Paid the price for our sin. Came back to life. Conquered the curse that sin has over our lives. Put an end to that. And now we can have a connection with him. We have a whole lot more of the story to tell than the shepherds did. They were like, ooh, we found a baby. It's the Messiah. We have a whole lot more to say. We have a whole lot more to tell. We got to go tell it. We got to go tell it. You can tell it at your work. You can tell it at your school. You can tell it on the mountain. You can tell it over the hills. You can tell it everywhere that Jesus Christ is born. All right, we can sing that together. My wife told me, do not sing it, so I won't. No, no, nope, not happening. I'm not doing it. If we dismiss this idea of evangelism, I think we very well may be missing a huge part of uh, what, what God wants us to know from the Christmas story even. Going and telling it is a really natural, not weird, natural next step. But when I say the word evangelism or bring up this idea of evangelism, uh, I feel like there's a tension because a lot of us, uh, I think we, we have this idea that evangelism is something that it's not. We got this, this other idea in our head. That's been locked and loaded of like what evangelism looks like, or or who can do it and who can't. I think evangelism, and I'm going to try to define it as pointing people towards Jesus. That's just a good working definition right now. 
pointing people towards Jesus has gotten a bad reputation. Watch this. According to George Barna, he did, uh, Barna Research does uh, research to benefit the church. And that's, that's what he does. And he has, he's a very great statistician and researcher. He found, uh, this is a few years old now, uh, but he found that, that Christ, he talked to Christians age 24 to 34, that younger demographic, 24 to 34, of that group of Christians, nearly all of them believed that accepting Jesus was the very best thing that could happen to them or to anyone else. And these younger Christians were, listen to this, two or three times more prepared to answer tough spiritual questions than Gen X or baby boomers. They were more prepared. Yet half of them believed it was morally wrong to share their faith. Where did that come from? It's the best thing that could happen to somebody. They're prepared to answer tough questions, but they think it's morally wrong to share their faith? How did they get that idea? I think, I think uh, maybe there's this idea, this perspective, that like, like we shouldn't impose upon another. Like we shouldn't impose. I, I get that. I get that. And that plays into it. But I think more than anything, they were probably turned off by some really bad evangelism. So when I talk about this younger demographic, 24 through 34, and how they come to this conclusion that it's morally wrong to share their faith, some of you might be thinking, oh, dumb kids these days. Where'd they get the idea? It's not the dumb kids. Like, they received the faith from us. They received that faith. It's our model that ruined it for them. So I think it's got a bad rep and it earned it. Christians are called to accurately pass down faith in Jesus to the next generation. I just said it a moment ago. We had child dedication today and it is our job to make sure the church is here a hundred years from now. Don't just think about the church that you get to see. Think about the church that your grandkids get to see but you don't. We have that kind of a responsibility when it comes to our faith. See, we've perpetuated this idea that evangelism was something besides what it, what it really is, besides just pointing people to Jesus. Um, there's three myths that maybe you've bought into. Um, the first myth is evangelism is talking with strangers. It's talking with strangers. Anyone ever kind of get that idea? Like, like oh, that's, that's what it is. You kind of put it in that box. It's talking with strangers, and that doesn't feel comfortable. Like, I got to go knock on doors. No. You, you don't have to. If God has called you to be an evangelist, maybe God has called you to knock on doors and go talk with strangers. And when God tells you to go talk to a stranger, by golly, then you're called to talk to a stranger. You better obey him. But that's not the only thing evangelism... I mean, maybe, maybe talking with strangers is evangelism. Maybe. But I think we should be pointing people towards Jesus just as a way of life in every conversation that we ever have. I think we should be pointing people towards Jesus. But it's not just like, oh, I talked with a stranger, now I gotta whip out my Bible and, you know, we're gonna have some magic happen. Or here's another, another bad perspective of evangelism. Evangelism is arm-twisting. I think, I think that, that gets in some, some of our minds. It's, you know, like, do it. Do it now. Say Yes. Do it. You want to do it? You want to go to hell? Do it. Do it now. Do it now. Yes, we got a salvation. 
Did you? Or did you get the guy to say yes? Like, I one time was, I used to believe that and function that way. And I was um, presenting the gospel to somebody. And I remember she looked back at me and said, also, it's, so the only reason I should do this is to just not go to hell. And I was like, no, you should totally surrender your life to Jesus. Like, she had me backed into a corner. And I was like, never mind. I got to go think about this. It's not arm twisting. Third myth, third lie about evangelism that gets it a bad, bad rep for a lot of people is that evangelism is arguing. These people believe that, you know, their, their goal is to talk with you and then convince you and now have you backed into a corner and there's no way you can back out of it. Ha <laughs> ha, I'm right, you're wrong. Apologetics has a place in faith, it really does. And it has a place even in evangelism. But you don't have to argue to to point people to Jesus. In fact, you, you might not be helping much if you're arguing. I've never met someone who, who was like, like, share your testimony, and they said, you know, somebody just argued with me until I realized I was wrong. I've never heard that testimony. Never heard that one. It got argued right into the kingdom of God. doesn't happen. I think evangelism probably should not involve arm twisting or arguing too much. See that same guy that did research, Barna? He also researched non-Christians, people who were not believers. And he said, if you were going to talk with somebody about faith, what characteristic would you want in the other person? He called them a faith conversation partner. And I hope that all of us today would be willing to be a faith conversation partner with somebody else. So so, uh, of the non-believers... Interviewed by, by George Barna, what, what uh, characteristics are they interested in? 62% said they, wanna, they want somebody that listens without judgment. Just can listen. But only a third of them actually know a Christian like that. Half of them said they wanted somebody that would not force a conclusion. Somebody that was willing to have more than one conversation. You can have another and another, and they'll keep loving me, and they'll have another, and they'll have another, and they still love me, and they'll have another. But apparently, there's not many like that. Only a fourth of those non-Christians said they ever knew a Christian like that. So apparently, three quarters of us want to make a decision for Jesus right now. Maybe it takes another conversation. Evangelism, I want to defreakify us from evangelism. It is a natural next step to truly encountering Jesus. If it doesn't, I think it's a natural next step. So how do we do it? That's what we're talking about today and really in this series. And real quick, I want to give four attitude adjustments, four attitude adjustments that I think are needed uh, for us to um, be benef- beneficial in talking with others about Jesus. We need this perspective to be in our life. And adjust our attitude. I just touched my mic. We need to adjust our attitude uh, so that we're salty to the earth. We're salty to the world. So here's four attitude adjustments. I'm going to give them, give them to you real quick. Four, four ways we need to be thinking. The first is ask questions. Ask questions. By the way, 
You know that, that what I'm saying is anointed because there's a lot of alliteration. A, 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 A. If it doesn't have alliteration, there's just a question about it. But the spirit is in alliteration. Amen. Three of you know that I'm joking. All right. Wow, tough crowd. Attitude adjustments. Number one is ask. Ask a lot of questions. Ask. When faith comes up, ask. Ask questions. Start asking questions about uh, what they think and what they believe. Just, just ask them. Get them to talk about what they think. This is an adjustment because most of us like to tell, tell, tell. But we need to ask. The second, the second attitude adjustment is admire. You're catching the alliteration here. A, admire. Admire their faith, however wrong it may be. That's hard. Because there's some people that could just be wrong, but you can admire something about what they believe. Find common ground is the idea here. Admire their faith. Find a little common ground. So we can say, we can say uh, oh, I see you want to be a, a, a good person. I, I do too. That's something we have in common. Third thing, attitude adjustment. We got to ask, we got to admire, we got to admit is number three. Admit your story. Nobody can argue with your story. Tell the story of how Jesus has impacted your life. You could say something like, I used to feel that too until... Tell about Jesus. He actually changed everything for me. Parents, if we want our kid... Is there, are there some parents in the room that are willing to admit that you've been stupid at some point in your life? Just, I've, been, I've, I've had some stupid... Do you want your kids to be as stupid as you were? Of course not. So tell them how stupid you were. Admit your story. Tell them what God has done in your life. And the fourth A, uh, attitude adjustment, ask, admire, admit, and attend. Attend to them. That's a sanctified, holy, ghost-filled uh, outline right there because it's got all the A's in it. Uh, attend to them. What I'm saying is care. Care for them. They're not your enemy. You don't need to argue with them. They're not your enemy. The devil's your enemy. They aren't your project. There's somebody that Jesus loves. So genuinely Care, genuinely care. If this idea starts to go into your head like, oh, this is my project, dismiss it. That's somebody Jesus loves. You need to love them. It's hard to love a project, right? Just ask God to change your heart on that. Christians, we're called to accurately pass down faith in Jesus to the next generation and across our own. And in this particular area, I think we may have failed a little. It doesn't have to be filled with uncomfortable conversations with strangers. And it should not involve arm, arm twisting or arguing. In fact, think about your own faith journey. Maybe, just maybe, Jesus Christ in the flesh showed up in front of you and said, hello, follow me. Maybe that happened, but I've not heard that story before. Think about where your faith journey started. You're probably thinking about a person, a person that shared something to you or opened the Bible and showed you something. Maybe it was a parent, maybe it was a Sunday school teacher, maybe it was a pastor, maybe it was a friend at work that invited you to come to church with them. There was somebody involved at the beginning of your faith journey. You are called to be somebody for somebody. That was good. I should say that again. Okay. Somebody was involved in your faith journey. You are called to be somebody to somebody. 
You are the best person in the world to reach the people that are around you. You're the best. Nobody can do it like you can. So the most important message we have when it comes to evangelism is this. Watch me. It starts there. By saying, just, just watch me. Watch me. Watch me glow. Watch me shine. And in doing so, we help people take a step up towards Jesus. All right, I got to kick this into high gear. We're going to go here. The Bible shows us how easily it is for faith to be completely lost. It could be completely gone. All it takes is three generations, okay? We see this. Moses led the Israelites, okay? And all it took is three generations, and Israel is like, God, who's God? They're just out of it. Moses effectively passed on the faith to Joshua, and Joshua rose up, took his place, and Joshua was committed. We can see this, this verse, Joshua 24, 15. Joshua says, as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Joshua was the first generation in, in this study. He was committed. That was the committed generation. Then the Bible tells us that there was a next generation. Let's read the passage there. Israel, all of Israel served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and experienced everything the Lord had done. So the elders who outlived Joshua That's the next generation. And that next generation, those elders, they weren't committed. They compromised. They compromised. And then there was one more generation after that in Judges chapter 2. It says, after that whole generation, the second one, after that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. So there was a generation that knew the Lord, a generation that kind of knew the Lord, and then a third generation. Who's, got, who's that? They were conflicted. They were conflicted. See, I think we got to think. Can we put that up? Yeah, see, Joshua was committed. The elders, the next generation, were compromised, and the new generation were conflicted. As we talk about this, I want you to start to, to, to imagine, where are you? Where are you? Are you committed to the Lord? If you're committed, that means you can walk around and say, watch me. Watch me glow. Watch me glow. That's where evangelism starts, by living brightly for Jesus. This isn't the first time this idea has come up in Scripture. It came up several times, actually. Um, Paul was talking to Timothy in the book of Timothy. We're going to look in Timothy today. In the book of Timothy, Paul was telling Timothy, basically, Get committed. Paul was committed, and he wanted to make sure that Timothy did not become the second generation that was just compromised. He's like, Timothy, you got to be committed yourself. You got you to gotta step up. Be committed. And so he gives three pieces of advice I'm going to share today. Here's, he gave a few pieces of it, more than that, but I'm going to share three. Here's the first one. He said, live shiny. He didn't say it in those words. Those are my, my paraphrase. But live shiny. Or another way to say that is live righteously. Live, live righteously. 1 Timothy 6.11 says, You, man of God, flee from all of this and pursue shininess or righteousness, godliness, faith, love, and endurance and gentleness. There's a verb there. Pursue. Not just be righteous, but, but chase it down. Run for it. It doesn't just accidentally happen. Living righteously doesn't accidentally happen. We pursue righteousness. We choose 
righteousness. We chase righteousness. We, we, when we feel like doing something else that's not righteous, we choose to do the righteous thing. It doesn't accidentally happen. We make a choice for it. And we don't live righteously, Christians, because, you know, for the heck of it, we live righteously because we love God. That is a huge piece. We, we do it because we love God. Those who love God obey his commands, Jesus said. Ephesians 4.30 talks about, uh, uh, it says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. And when that, for, you cannot grieve without having an emotion. Grieving is an emotion. And when it was pointed out to me, that God has emotions about my sin, that was different. I no longer just tried to live good because, you know, I was told to. I wanted to live good because I don't want to hurt God. I don't want to hurt him. See, Joshua, the committed, the committed, the seat that we all need to, to, to reach towards, the committed live rightly because they love Jesus. The compromise, the next generation, lives rightly because they saw it in their, their faithful parents. You know, they ought to. You know, they ought to. This person says, I'm not going to have sex until I'm married because God says so. And I love him more. I love him more than anything. And these people say, well, you know, I guess that's what I'm supposed to do. And the third generation says, well, dad was a hypocrite anyway. He didn't, they didn't see things line up. They're conflicted but nobody ever calls a Joshua a hypocrite. Even if he messes up. Because you see, when we're committed, we're committed to, to knowing what Jesus Christ did, which is covered, the, covered our sin, paid the price for our sin. So I can mess up. I can mess up and own my sin. Like, I'm sorry. See, see, messing up doesn't make you a hypocrite. Not owning it, I think, does. Because that, that, that means, if not owning it, means you don't even believe in the forgiveness that Jesus has for your life. So I can live rightly, even if I've screwed up. I can, I can, say, I can say, watch me live rightly. Watch me live shiny, even if I mess up because I'm willing to say, I'm sorry. Forgive me, Lord. Here's the second thing that, Timothy, that Paul said to Timothy, number two. He said, live brightly or visibly. We should be seen living. Paul did not live his life as a hermit. Paul lived his life so people knew what kind of life he was living. And he wrote to Timothy. He said, you, you know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, my faith, my patience, my love and endurance. We don't live rightly to be seen, but we should be seen living rightly. You get the difference. I'm not living a holy life to show it off to you, but I want you to see that I live a holy life because it can encourage others. My dad has a story about this and I, I love it. There was a guy that used to come to our church named Bud Carper. There, he passed away. but I say he used to come, it looks like he left. He, he died. Um, but Bud Carper used to be, back in the olden days, like they would have people pump your gas for you. I never knew that, but some of you do. It's like my dad. My dad. My dad knows this. He, he would pull up, he tells the story, he would pull up to the gas station and there was a guy that, Bud Carper is who it was, Bud would come out and pump the gas. And my dad tells the story how, how Bud, he was foul-mouthed Bud. He was always flapping his jaw and it, not all the clean words would come out. 
And my dad would always come up and he would just say, fill her up, bud. Fill her up, bud. And bud would come out, all right, and filled it up. Never once did my dad invite him to church. But when he needed Jesus, he came. When he was in trouble, he came. Why? Because my dad was living like that. He's just living bright. Just living bright. Never once did he invite him to church. But he came because he lived brightly. I hope I'm de-freakifying evangelism a little bit for us. We don't need to be freaked out about this. Live bright, live shiny, live bright. This is just as simple. Oh, yeah, this is good. What I'm saying to, to live bright, this is just as good as getting on a toothpick. I, don't, I haven't been to the mall as much recently, but do you remember back like when you go, go through the food court? This is before COVID. They would have like a tray with a bunch of little Bourbon Street chicken with a little toothpick in it. Remember this? And they would, they would, you would walk past and they'd say, Bourbon Street chicken. And you could take a little piece of Bourbon Street chicken and be like, oh, wow, that sample is delicious. If this is how good this is, then... I want the whole thing. Christians, we need to be on the toothpick. We're a sample of the real thing. We're a sample of the real thing. And then when people come to church, this is more of the real thing, but it's still a sample of the real thing. We're just, we're just a sample. We need to get on the toothpick. Now, if you remember the guy at the mall that would say Bourbon Street Chicken that was passing off, off samples, have you ever heard that guy say, careful of that one, it's gross. He doesn't do that. And have you ever heard that guy say, uh, careful, uh, we had a bad batch last night and some people got sick. <laughs> Nobody does that. I love me some Bourbon Street chicken partly because they help control the pick cat population. <laughs> oh, sorry. Not sorry. A little bit. We are a sample of the real thing. But nobody trying to, to offer samples talks about the piece that had gristle in it. But everybody knows that some chicken has some gristle or, or fat in it. It's not all perfect. If you've ever gotten the whole serving of bourbon street chicken, you know that there's some yuckies in it sometimes. So when you are on the toothpick at school at work, at the gym, at whatever club you go to, wherever you are, at the shop, you are on a toothpick. Don't point out the gristle. It's always there. Talk about how good your church is. You don't need to point out the piece that, well, you know, I went, I went to one and it was... <laughs> Who does that? You want them to experience how good God is. And yes, there are some pieces. There are some pieces that aren't good, that haven't been fixed up yet. But talk about how good your church is. Talk about what God has done for you. Talk about what God wants to do for them at church. And make sure your kids hear you talking about it too. Tomorrow, somebody's going to say, Do you have a good Thanksgiving weekend? And you're going to talk about your feast, and you're going to talk about your pumpkin pie, and you're going to talk about your shopping spree Friday. Fine. But if you don't mention your church, you're missing a great opportunity here. 
Just, oh, oh my, my pastor went on about cats again. Just, that's, there you go. That's all you have to say. And they'll be like, what? Oh, he hates cats. It's pretty funny. Talk, say something good. Say something good about your church tomorrow. Okay, number three. Third thing that uh, Paul tells Timothy, he says, live futuristically. Live futuristically. Paul tells Timothy, make sure that when you do your faith, you do it in such a way that Christianity is still here 100 years from now. Or really, maybe he was meaning, you know, make sure it's here 2,000 years from now. Paul told Timothy, and the things you've heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. So it's not just teach, but teach those who are going to teach. Like we're, we're making disciples, not just making disciples, but we're making disciples who step into the committed position and make more disciples, who step in the committed position and make more disciples. In other words, help people move to committed and transformed themselves. And this starts with getting up there ourselves, being committed. The best way to make a good disciple is to be a good disciple. Be somebody worth emulating. That's the beginning of evangelism. If you are a Christian and anybody knows it, you are walking around all day long saying, watch me. You are. People want to know if Christianity is real. Does your life really change? They're, they're looking. They're going to see it. You don't have to say it. You just have to live it. I urge you, be somebody worth emulating. The best way to make a good disciple is to be one. It starts there. Would you stand up with me? At Christmas time, we remember that Jesus came to be the light of the world. Uh, it's actually John chapter 1. You know, he was the light. He came. The light was in the darkness. So Jesus is the light. But today he is not physically present. Jesus is no longer the light of the world the same way he was when he first came. Jesus is only the light of the world as seen in you and me. Jesus himself, he said this. Like, like so, so we call Jesus the light, but he said, you are the light of the world. He said that to believers. Can we put that up, Matthew chapter 5? He said, you're the light of the world. A town built on a hill can't be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a, a bowl or a bushel, you could say. Instead, they put it on a, on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Let's agree to this. Let's make this our challenge that we're going to let our light shine. Lord, make it so in us, God.